Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the status of the war in Ukraine and the decision made recently for the U.S. to provide cluster bombs to Ukraine, a munition that Biden's press secretary referred to as a potential war crime when it was reported that Russia had used them. Sources today include Gaslit Nation, The Good Fight, The Majority Report, Democracy Now!, Deconstructed and Intercepted, with additional members-only clips from Intercepted and The Good Fight. Olga, what the hell happened this weekend in Russia? Are we witnessing the inevitable collapse of Russia? Oh, yes, we are. And um, this was a very fun weekend. (laughs) Uh, Definitely everyone, the whole world was, um, you know, watching this unraveling of Russia. But the collapse actually started last year. And it um, basically, um, after Russia launched its full-scale invasion and genocide in Ukraine, um, you know, they took territory, about 13, 14% of territory, aside from what they had occupied in 2014. The late summer, around, I would say, August, September, uh, when Ukraine launched its successful counteroffensive and started taking back territory, that is when everything started unraveling. And from there, we saw the Russian military blockers that have a lot of influence inside of Russia, you know, being critical of the Ministry of Defense, being critical of Putin himself. One even, you know, said, why did we even bother electing him in 2012? We should have found a a new leader back then. And we also saw the fight with uh, Prigozhin escalating with Ministry of Defense. But now this has been going on. I mean, Russia launched its full-scale invasion in Ukraine. You would think that their main objective would be fighting in Ukraine. But since I've probably last May for over a year now, they are busy shooting each other on the front lines. And you have the Chechens who are shooting the uh, Wagner, well, I call them Wagnerites, and you have both shooting the Russian military, anyone who's trying to surrender to Ukrainian armed forces. And I mean, it's been a shit show basically since, you know, this started. And come September, Prigozhin starts getting extremely critical of Ministry of Defense. The more losses that Russia is taking inside of Ukraine, the more humiliation there is. And Russia has always been a very well-oiled propaganda machine. And suddenly you see the propagandists on TV unraveling. No one is on the same page. You see the Russian military bloggers, you know, start fighting and being critical of different of the elites of the um, Ministry of Defense even the Duma members, and you just see this whole thing, you know, being created, all these divisions, and the fractures kept growing, 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 to the point come around November where things got started getting extremely uh, worse, and Prigozhin came out and called the general chief of staff of mm-hmm. Gerasimov, and a fucking devil, excuse my language, coming yes. from him. These people but that is something, reminder. yeah, this is something that they um, crossed the code of conduct because you don't cross these lines, not in the past few centuries inside of Soviet Union or Russian Empire. It's straight up the real housewives of the Kremlin. It is, Sorry. it is. And I mean, they, and from there, it's just the, the feud kept growing between Ministry of Defense and Prigozhin. And then we basically, the Friday start where Prigozhin releases the video and says that, you know, Russia, since they invaded Ukraine in 2014, that basically the elites have been robbing um, Crimea and Donbass, that everyone's pocketing money and that it was unnecessary and there's no denazification, that's all a lie, there's no demilitarization, that's a lie, and that he's going to, you know, basically march to the Kremlin. Now, by no means is Prigozhin a good guy. Prigozhin is a terrorist. Wagner is a terrorist organization. They are responsible for beheading people, for raping, for tortures uh, across Africa, across the Middle East, um, Latin America, and then obviously Ukraine. And Wagner was um, created specifically for annexation of Crimea in 2014 by a GRU colonel who seems to always go uh, um, escaped from U.S. media. So that who is who really is behind Wagner and Prigozhin is the public face of it. And that's it. And this is where it's going to be. And basically, as I say, this is uh, 
Uh, again, another, uh, Andrea loves history. This is another example of Russia being Russia over the past few centuries. They, when there's pressure on the system, they become self-destructive and they start attacking each other. And then it all descends into chaos and the meanest dog in the fight tends to win. Spring Offensive end up starting much later than we anticipated. I'd love to understand the reasons for why that is. I mean, we're recording this on June the 20th, so technically the last day of a Spring Offensive, and by the time that people listen to this, Spring is technically over. And then it sounds like even once the offensive actually started, progress was slower than at least some people hoped. Does this mean that we have to reevaluate some of the assumptions about the morale and the strength of the Russian army? Is it just in the nature of what's effectively now a form of trench warfare that, you know, defensive lines are very strong and you get the kind of meat grinder attempts to move lines that we might associate with World War I? You know, what is the explanation for why some of these hopes seem to be being dashed at the moment? I think you have to understand, and you alluded to this a little bit, that the idea of a spring counteroffensive in particular is driven by political demands, by the wishes of allies who have put a lot of money and aid and military equipment and training and diplomatic support into Ukraine to say, hey, show us something, show us some progress. And that's primarily a political pressure and not a military or strategic one, that there was a real vibrant and is a real vibrant debate even within the Ukraine's own military community as to whether to wait or to go. And you can see some of that diplomatic pressure taking the form of trying to show some evidence of advances and progress ahead of a NATO summit next month to show, hey, thank you, NATO, for your support. Not only should Ukraine be given a pathway into NATO, but look at what we've done so far with all the support you've provided us. So a, lo a lot of this on the timing of the counteroffensive has been based on this political pressure that has arisen and these expectations that have arisen from the West and other Ukrainian allies. So you're effectively suggesting that some of the expectations and the success of a spring offensive were never realistic, but they're always driven by these kind of political demands. I mean, one of the things that strikes me, I'm not an expert in Ukraine, I'm certainly not an expert in military campaigns, is how often the war has shifted over the course of its first year, and perhaps particularly over the course of the first eight or nine months, I mean, the first day of a war, most military experts were expecting tanks to roll down the streets of Kiev imminently. It nearly felt like, you know, cable channels were just waiting for those images to quote-unquote finally appear on the TV screens, because of course they would make for good ratings. Then there was a huge surprise in how successful Ukraine was in resisting the attack and then pushing it back to some extent. But then there's a few more shifts where, you know, for a while people started to think Russia is really on the offensive and the Russian army might be about to collapse. That didn't happen. And then the Russians seemed to be on the offensive again. But again, they didn't get as far as they might. Do you expect those kind of surprises to keep happening? Or was that in part caused by an early phase of a war where defensive positions had not been dug and reinforced to the extent that they have been now, such that the sort of quite volatile war with lots of opportunities for experts to get things wrong uh, might now be giving away to a much more grinding, stable war in which, you know, it might move a few meters this way and a few meters that way, but effectively we can expect this grinding process to go on for the next little bit. Or to put this question another way, if there isn't some form of armistice or some form of negotiated settlement, what are the realistic scenarios for how this war might end? You talk to Ukrainians and they're not remotely close to some sort of diplomatic arrangement. The way I describe it is that there have been two phases of the war in terms of public opinion and the interest in a diplomatic solution to the war. There's the pre-Bucha phase and there's the post-Bucha phase. You know, I was in Kyiv when the invasion started and I remember talking to people hoping that it would be over in, you know, three weeks, four weeks, two months, three months. But public opinion dramatically changed and hearts really hardened after it became clear that Russia had committed these terrible atrocities just outside of Kyiv. And it wasn't merely that they had killed unarmed civilians or looted areas as they were leaving that area around Kyiv, but it's that I think a lot of Ukrainians had visited those places, had seen the apartments where these atrocities happened and thought, well, my apartment looks 
quite a lot like that. That family looks a lot like my family. And after that moment, I think there really was no prospect for any sort of negotiated peace in the medium term. I, I spoke to one woman and that conversation will always stick with me. We, we spoke right after the atrocities in Bucha were revealed. And she works in the medical field. She's a former doctor. She is as empathetic as one can get. She told me, I'm a Christian. I know that I'm taught to love everyone, but I can't forgive this. She described this hatred, this burning inside her that really hardened her towards any sort of sympathy or interest in talking to the Russian forces that had invaded her country. And I think that probably represents the vast majority of public opinion in Ukraine right now. So how does this end? If that's the public opinion, if that's the median person in Ukraine, then it doesn't end. That the only way it ends is on the battlefield. I mean, you look at where the Ukrainian diplomatic position and the Russian diplomatic position is, and it could, I mean, it could not be further apart, right? The plans that each side has proposed is basically the other side must give up. And that's not really a recipe for a diplomatic agreement. In terms of, you know, where things are on the battlefield, the expectations have been set, as you wisely point out, by these dramatic movements in terms of control of territory in the first year of the war. And what's obvious is that it's easier to be on the defensive than it is to be on the offensive. American military doctrine is clear about how you need to have a multiple to attack than to defend. And we've spoken about this counteroffensive for months and months and months and months. And so what have the Russians been able to do? They've been able to heavily mine likely approaches towards their territory and create really very solid defensive structures. One advantage they have is that they still have superiority in the sky. They don't have total control of the skies, but they're able to operate with relative impunity due to Ukraine's lack of kind of tactical air defense that supports their troops. Ukraine has made a strategic decision to locate its air defense in the cities to protect civilians. And so that leaves their troops more vulnerable on the move. And so, yes, it will be a long and grinding process. Now, the big issue is the issue of morale, right? Can we see a collapse in the Russian lines due to inexperienced soldiers, soldiers who don't have a lot of training and don't have a lot of will to be there? They've been, for example, conscripted, or they're not particularly motivated to be in a foreign country fighting. And as the war goes on, you can imagine a scenario where there is a collapse in Russian lines. We're not there yet, obviously, but the counteroffensive is just starting. And I wouldn't try to draw too many conclusions from a couple weeks of fighting. a week out from the NATO summit in, in Vilnius. Before we get to the summit and where we are, I don't know which one would have you want to take this question, but give us just sort of like the brief history of NATO since 93, right? When the Soviet Union falls, I, mean, I think everybody understands where, where NATO sort of developed in the wake of World War II, an alliance uh, that was created across the Atlantic between allies from uh, World War II, but also in terms of like the the burgeoning Soviet uh, bloc. But since 93, give us a little bit of a thumbnail. Sure, Derek, maybe I could start and you could uh, correct me where I'm wrong. Uh, it's interesting to look back on what happened to NATO because the question was, at the time, was the United States con- going to continue to try to dominate the world. Uh, The justification for U.S. hegemony for the previous half century was really that the Soviet Union, if it wasn't confronted, would take over the world and communism would go forward. So the question was, was there going to be a peace dividend that was going to be used to, you know, spend money on things like social welfare instead of military alliances abroad, particularly when there was no perceived existential threat in NATO? What's related to that was it was maybe, you know, the prime discussion when we were talking about the transatlantic alliance. But of course, the U.S. did continue uh, to commit itself to hegemony. And since 1993, roughly speaking, NATO has become more and more involved in a, a bunch of um, areas that it previously didn't really do it. It had deployed troops um, in Eastern Europe. It even deployed troops out of area in uh, 2011, right, Derek, during Libya. So I think the story over the last 30 years is just NATO becoming larger and larger, doing more and more things that it didn't really do during the Cold War and becoming um, really a synecdoche for U.S. empire and the United States' desire to dominate writ large. Well, we should also say the troops are deployed in Afghanistan. 
NATO yeah. has a, um, you know, their treaty is that, uh, you know, you attack one of us and, and the rest of us will come. And that's what justified their involvement in Afghanistan. Although, oddly, it wasn't necessarily Afghanistan that was uh, attacked, uh, that attacked us on 9-11. I mean, there's a lot of asterisks uh, there. Let's put it that way. But let's go to like uh, 2004, where 11 years after and the ostensible rationale for uh, NATO sort of falls apart, right? And at that time, there was a deal struck with Ukraine of their defense to get rid of nukes. And I remember in 93, the sort of the peace dividend that was was going to show up and never sort of did. But in 2004, there's an expansion. Just talk a little bit about that, because that really gives you a sense of where this is all going. To sort of build on what Danny was talking about, and also to pick up on, on something you said there, which was NATO's ostensible purpose is no longer relevant. I think if you dig into what NATO was really supposed to be about, and there's a great piece in the New York Times, maybe a week ago now by Gray Anderson and Thomas Meany, that really argues that NATO was never really a Cold War defense alliance. It was an arm of American empire. It was a way to make to maintain U.S. hegemony over uh, European politics in a, in a much broader sense than just defense. But it was a way to keep U.S. military contractors selling weapons. It was a way to make sure that basically U.S. primacy was maintained across Europe throughout that period. And I think that just continued. So in a sense, its real mission never went away. Uh, and in fact, was expanded after the, the fall of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. So that expansion that you get in the 90s, and then in 2004, into Central Eastern Europe, into places that were very much in the Soviet periphery during the Cold War, th that's just a natural continuation of this process. And it's it's part of the story if we talk about the war in Ukraine and, and the, you know, the drama, obviously, that surrounds Ukraine potentially becoming a, a NATO member. Is this steady expansion into Eastern Europe, which, of course, you, know, you get arguments that effectively take NATO's na agency away in a sense. You know, these countries wanted to join NATO, so don't they have the, the, the right to do so? Which you know, they, they have the right to apply, I guess, but NATO doesn't have necessarily any obligation to admit these places. But it is part of the backdrop to escalating Russian grievances over the past now 30 years about its relationship with the West. Now, my understanding, though, and recollection was in 2004, in that expansion, Putin did not have or make an issue Let's put it that way, I guess, with the expansion of that. And if I remember correctly, like half of maybe it was seven or eight uh, countries and maybe a half of them were literally part of the USSR. And then the other half, more or less, you guys will, will know the details, were part of the Warsaw Pact. So they were in the Iron Curtain version of NATO, if you will. And there was no no big issue with that. But clearly, NATO could have said, no, sorry, well, that's not what our plan is to expand our membership. But why did these countries want to join NATO at that time? Yeah, I think the way to describe it is that these were countries that were part of the USSR, were part of the Eastern Bloc, but weren't core countries like a Georgia or Ukraine. They were countries that, for example, if you look at Lithuania, a country that went back and forth between the Nazis and Soviets between 1939 and 1941. So they were part of it, but they, they weren't core. And I think that that explains why later on in 2008, Putin got you know more concerned with what he considered to be NATO expansion. But the reason that these countries would want to be part of NATO is obvious. They don't want the, the I almost said the Soviet Union, they don't want the Russian Federation to invade them. They don't want to be pressured by the Russian Federation. This provides some sort of shield against Russian encroachment and Russian pressure. So it's very obvious um, and understandable why these countries would want to be part of NATO. But the, the question that I think we as um, Americans or people within this country have to ask is how does that relate to the perceived national interest? Because there are lots of countries around the world that would want the United States or alliances to provide for their defense, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we want to do that because that could be, if you consider uh, the U.S. empire to be a problem, that would just necessarily mean the total expansion of the U.S. empire. And I think this gets into difficult questions when you have gen populations genuinely want to be part of this alliance does that necessarily mean that we should allow them to join or, or that left-wing critics, people who don't like things like war and imperialism even, should allow them to join? And it raises really um, thorny questions that I think got played out a lot in this uh, recent Russian invasion of Ukraine. Our ad system respects your privacy, but if you'd like to get rid of them entirely, we would love to have you as a member of the show. 
Members enjoy an ad-free version of the show, as well as bonus episodes and bonus content in each regular episode, plus extremely handy chapter markers that help identify and navigate the clips. Sign up for membership at bestofleft.com support. Why don't you start off by telling us in this many-month investigation what you did, what surprised you most? And don't speak in sound bites. <laughs> Thank you, Amy, for having me on again. You know, I worked on this question of what the role of the CIA was in Ukraine, and I wanted to know particularly whether or not all of the Hollywood rumors surrounding the agency uh, its possible involvement in the attack on the Nord Stream pipelines, its possible involvement in other sabotage attacks inside Russia. Uh, a lot of the uh, news that I was hearing about uh, the presence of the CIA on the ground and its covert assistance, I wanted to know how much of it was true. And uh, I went down this path to uh, try to get to the truth. Um, what I came up with most importantly, and really this is most importantly, is that the CIA is an intelligence agency. And so its number one mission in Ukraine is to collect intelligence, collect intelligence, not just on what the Russians are doing, but also on what the Ukrainians are doing. And that's the biggest blind spot, as I identified, which is that the United States knows as little about what Zelensky is up to and what he's thinking and what his views are about the future as it does about Vladimir Putin and his future plans and intentions. And so this might come as a surprise to some people, but as my sources explained it to me, the reality is that Ukraine is not an ally of the United States. We have no treaty obligations towards Ukraine, and the United States is not at war with Russia. So this is a particularly unique battlefield in which the CIA is playing an outsized role, but it is playing an outsized role because the Biden administration has been firm in saying that the U.S. military will not be involved in any direct way in the fighting or on the battlefield or indeed inside Ukraine. So you have the situation where the, uh, the CIA's primary mission, which is to figure out what it is that the Russians and the Ukrainians are doing, as well as now its augmented mission, which is to play a greater role in the provision of arms to U Ukraine, a greater role in counterintelligence, a greater role in, uh, in corralling all of the neighbor states to Ukraine so that they stay firmly uh, engaged in the war, some countries of which the domestic population is not as enthusiastic about war with Russia as is, say, for instance, Poland, that this role uh, really stretches the CIA quite thin in terms of what it's doing, but also it's, it's got its hand in a little bit of everything. And I would say that I would give it low marks on understanding the intentions of Putin or Zelensky, very high marks on understanding what's going on in the battlefield. But the most high marks are in moving the, the, the billions of dollars worth of weapons uh, that the United States and NATO has pledged to Kiev. But now, uh, William Arkin, the, the CIA is no stranger to Ukraine. Clearly, in, in the post-World War II period, uh, it was involved uh, in developing um, uh, right-wing groups within Ukraine that were uh, opposing the Soviet Union, a lot of them former neo-Nazis. And as you write, uh, the uh, the CIA has been central to the war, this war, even before it began, when, when Biden tapped uh, Director uh, William Burns as his global troubleshooter. Could you talk about Burns's role and this historic connection between the CIA and uh, and groups in Ukraine? Well, when Joe Biden became president, he appointed a number of his close associates, uh, Antony Blinken and Jake Sullivan, to be his main national security actors. Uh, but the person that was appointed to be the director of the CIA, former ambassador to Russia, William Burns, and a, and a, a foreign service officer in his career, uh, was somebody who was much more uh, considered to be the senior statesman if, uh, of the administration, if you will, the person with the most experience. And so when Russia invaded Ukraine in, in February uh, 2022, uh, it, it was no surprise that Burns became the central figure in this, uh, in this uh, war and that uh, he had both the, the superior knowledge of Putin and, and of Russia, but also he had had a long career specializing in Eastern Europe. So when he was appointed, uh, the sort of the, the Biden administration's uh, back channel negotiator, diplomat, and and main spy. Uh, it it 
be- it fell to him uh, to handle relations with uh, Kiev. Remember, the U.S. embassy was closed for a long time. It fell to the CIA uh, to handle the clandestine relations that existed with Poland and other countries, uh, relationships which had been built up since 9-11 and, and, and since even the end of the Cold War. So uh, the CIA has played an extremely important role in the modern era. And I would say that the legacy of what the CIA may have done in the Soviet era uh, just is not represented by those who work in the CIA today, uh, nor is it part of what the CIA thinks its main purpose is. Uh, And in terms of uh, why the Biden administration has not insisted on more uh, uh, openness on the part of uh, Ukraine's government, given the enormous amount of aid that the U.S. is giving, uh, why hasn't uh, it pressed uh, President Zelensky to be more forthcoming about uh, uh, what Ukraine is doing? Well, I think that the CIA and the U.S. government has pressed the Ukrainians. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have full control over them. The reality is that the U.S.'s main objective and the Biden administration's supreme objective has always been to see that the war not be escalated, that 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 the United States uh, not be uh, put into a situation where it's fighting against Russia directly. And part of that was to urge Ukraine not to attack Russia not to attack Belarus, where Russian forces were deployed. And that really pretty much worked up until about September or October of last year, first when the Nord Stream bombings occurred, and then second when the attack on the Kerch Bridge occurred, Uh, in which case uh, the United States, the U.S. intelligence believed that uh, Ukraine was behind both of them. And and though it believed that Ukrainian factions were behind both of those attacks, it wasn't altogether clear to the CIA that Zelensky himself uh, had foreknowledge or even had been read in on those operations, because Zelensky's power himself, those powers are are himself limited in inside Ukraine. And so the CIA might have put a lot of pressure on Zelensky and his government uh, in order to be more transparent or to deal with corruption or to deal with accountability. But it's not altogether clear that uh, Zelensky has full control over the Ukrainian military or the Ukrainian secret services, uh, nor is it necessarily the case that the United States is in a position to really exert much leverage against Ukraine at this point. It's like uh, too big to fail uh, that the United States has invested so much in the Ukraine war that it it can't really credibly uh, say to Zelensky, if you don't do X, we're going to stop supplying you with arms. It's just not a tenable policy anymore. So the CIA represents these many interests, the interest not to escalate with Russia, the interest not to have Russia resort to the use of nuclear weapons, uh, trying to understand what Putin's position and Putin's thinking is. But at the same time, it, it struggles with the question of whether or not it understands well enough what it is that Ukraine wants and also what it is that Ukraine will accept uh, beyond its public rhetoric uh, in, in, in trying to end the war. So, Ryan, this week, you and another um, Intercept Politics reporter, Daniel Bogoslaw, reported on an amendment that would block the transfer of cluster munitions to Ukraine, as well as everywhere else in the world. Um, It was introduced by Democratic uh, Representatives Sarah Jacobs and Ilhan Omar, and it looked like it was gaining some bipartisan support, including from um, Representative Gates. So here's a clip of Matt Gates talking about supporting the bill on his podcast. Democrat Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs, who we've criticized a great deal on the show for some of her views. She's probably criticized me a great deal for some of mine, but she has introduced an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act that reads, notwithstanding any other provision of law, no military assistance shall be furnished for cluster munitions. No defense export license for cluster munitions may be issued and no cluster munitions or cluster munitions technology shall be sold or transferred. And what I'm here to tell you is that I'm going to be the Republican co-sponsor of the Jacobs Amendment before the House Rules Committee. We have an opportunity with bipartisanship to stand against the warmongering Bidens. And these cluster bombs will not end the war in Ukraine. Let's look at the countries where cluster bombs have been used. Laos, Lebanon, Afghanistan, Yemen, Syria. Cluster bombs are features of the world's bloodiest and most inhumane wars. Some of the longest, it's hardly the cornerstone of a path to peace. 
So, Ryan, can you give us a little background into the Omar and Jacobs Amendment and, you know, why the transfer of cluster munitions is a progressive priority? Well, yeah, this this sprang from the Biden administration's announcement that they were going to start shipping uh, munitions, which uh, they seem to be suggesting on background was happening because they were running out of regular munitions, which you know doesn't really uh, make make it uh, make those any less harmful to civilians in, in the future. Uh, the problem with with cluster munitions, well, a you know more than a hundred countries have banned them. Uh, now, among the, those who have not banned them is China, Russia, Turkey, which appears to be shipping them to Ukraine uh, and the United States. And so, while it is kind of against international law for most countries, it's not against international law uh, for for us to do it. The problem with these cluster munitions is that you know they when when they blow up and they spread out, uh, they need a pretty hard surface to explode, and so they get tested out in this very hard southwest desert. And the ones that we're sending over there have something like a six percent dud rate, which means that if you drop you know, several hundred thousand of them, or you drop several, you know, several million clusters, you're going to wind up with several hundred thousand unexploded cluster munitions sitting around in the ground, you know, for decades waiting for somebody to come along and f- to have their legs blown off by them. And those are under conditions with a pretty tough ground. If you're dropping them in mud, you know, you're, you might be lucky to get a 6% uh, dud rate. You might actually be looking at a much, much higher rate. Uh, which means that you'd have many more people. Now, the Biden administration made a kind of macabre argument, which is that, well, uh, there's already a lot of cluster munitions and landmines flying all over Ukraine. Uh, you know, so what's a few more million of them? Once that's your argument, you've kind of taken a wrong turn somewhere. Um, Eric, am I missing anything there? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Um, and I think, you know, one of the fundamental issues in Washington is uh, really relates to a whole range of U.S. Uh, interventions and policies abroad is that there isn't an understanding that it actually matters. Uh, our primary duty as Americans is to not do harm ourselves. You know, of course, we all really we want to help also as many, you know, good, well-intentioned, progressive people and compassionate people that we want to stop harm being done by others. Um, but in this case, you know, I think we're going to see uh, unfortunately, we're going to hear for for probably a very long time uh, reports of, of children and innocent civilians being hurt, and um, you know those who supported this action will, will will have that on their conscience, and I think um, and will be you know able to be direct, directly, you know that's that's directly attributable to this decision. So I think that's what's often missing is saying, well, Russia does it, uh, then. Uh, it's okay if we do it, uh, except for that we don't support Russia doing it. We've actually criticized Russia for doing it. Um, so it's, it's one thing that they just kind of skip over in, in, in the debates. Right. And so the way that these things work in the Rules Committee, Noska, to answer your other question is that you typically, if you're going to get to the House floor, you're going to want bipartisan support. You know, if, 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 you're, if you're a Republican and you have a Republican amendment and you're in the majority, you're, you're probably okay, but it helps to have Democratic support. Uh, but if you are trying to get a cluster of munitions you know, ban onto the, onto a, the floor for a vote, you're going to need Republican support because there's nine Republicans on the rules committee and just four Democrats. Three of those Republicans are, you know, Tea Party folks who were added because of that that McCarthy revolt. And so getting Gates was was a big step, uh, you know, forward to say that, okay, maybe you're going to get some Freedom Caucus support because it's just enough that if you add up uh, the four Democrats and three Tea Party folks, you can win seven, six and, and get onto the House floor. And so uh, advocates were encouraged that that it was going to make it at that point. And then I think we'll talk about some of the shenanigans that went on after that. Uh, I think this is actually a really good opportunity to play an interview that our, my colleague, um, a brief interview my colleague Daniel Bogoslaw did uh, with Gates outside of the Rules Committee that gets into some of his thinking around this issue. Do we have that handy? I'm sorry. He was next. Uh, last time we spoke, you said you were going Mr. Worldwide. You're looking to reduce uh, military transfers all over the world. There's amendments looking at reducing military transfers to Ecuador, Guatemala, Central American countries, in addition to Yemen, which you said you were interested in. Do you think that there's uh, any consensus in the Freedom Caucus around some of these other issues outside? So I, I think about our hemisphere considerably different than I think about Syria and Yemen. I think that we do have equities at play in Latin America. I support a reinvigorated Monroe Doctrine. And so I'm going to, I wouldn't lump Guatemala and El Salvador in with Yemen and Syria. So kind of like a half isolationism. What do you what do you make of uh, what does that tell us, Eric, about this kind of new right Republican foreign policy? Yeah, well, it is uh, it is a more traditional um, America first approach. I think it's focused on uh, protecting the border, protecting you know what they see as core in American interests, and you know just like with so many other politicians, but particularly with these folks, uh, there's limited uh, areas of overlap, uh, and and you look for those where you can um, to the extent they're helpful and. 
um, you know, and then oftentimes uh, it can be unhelpful as well, depending on on which member or or uh, as happened with the cluster bombs amendment that which we'll probably discuss more shortly. So, Mark, I'm going to ask you to explain the basic fundamental issue of what cluster munitions are, uh, the impact that they have when they're used, uh, but also the impact that they continue to have if they are dropped and they don't actually explode. But first, I just wanted to get your reaction to the position that the Biden White House has taken here. Um, A lot of the social media commentary and uh, commentary from people who are supportive of transferring the cluster munitions to Ukraine um, basically boils down to whatever weapons Ukraine needs to fight off this illegal invasion, we should give them. And when you get to a more granular level, people will say, well, Russia is using these also, so it's only fair that Ukraine be able to use them as well. But the Biden White House has, has come out with a defense of transferring these cluster munitions to Ukraine. So first of all, just your response to what Biden personally has been saying and the position of the administration. Well, look, I just want to start by saying I am fully supportive of Ukraine and their defense in this unlawful invasion by Russia. But there have to be lines drawn. There must be limits. And transferring a weapon that has been banned by 123 states, including two-thirds of NATO, is just a, a step too far, a bridge too far, and and honestly, I think is morally bankrupt, particularly when you look at the Biden administration and, and you know the White House's response when it was revealed that Russia was using cluster bombs. And and let's be clear here, you know, Russia has used cluster bombs throughout this conflict. They've used them to target civilians. There was one incident in 2022 the single largest number of civilians killed by Russia was in uh, a cluster bomb strike. It was in the city of Kramatorsk. There was a, a train station and 58 civilians were killed by Russian cluster bombs in that attack. And the Biden administration's response when it first came out that the Russians were using cluster bombs was, hey, this is potentially a war crime. And so the White House sees Russia's use of cluster munitions as a war crime. But we're perfectly fine with sending them to Ukraine, which for me is just a morally bankrupt position and uh, I think highly questionable. And so I'm, I'm very troubled by it. I've been looking at cluster bombs for the past 20 years. The U.S. has not used them uh, since 2003. Uh, there, there was one incident in 2009 uh, when a single weapon was used. Uh, but in 20 years of war against ISIS and others, the U.S. has not used these weapons. And so I'm, I'm shocked and, and really incredibly dismayed, particularly with uh, a Democratic president, which has been so supportive of the different uh, weapon bans uh, and, and no use. And, and so I'm just uh, very upset, as you can tell. Walk us through the mechanics of what cluster munitions are, how they function, and, and what they do when they hit. So a cluster munition, or as, as many people call them, a cluster bomb. Uh, is basically a large carrier, right? It's a, it's a big bomb. So it can be an artillery shell, it can be a rocket, or it can be an aerial bomb dropped by a plane. And so, you know, it's kind of this mother bomb. And when it goes over the target, it opens up and it releases anywhere from dozens to hundreds of smaller bombs. And, and these are called either bomblets or submunitions by the military. They, they pretty much use that interchangeably. And the idea here is that it gives the military a reach and an economy of force, right? So you're using one bomb to drop many, many bombs. And, and that's great. You know, from the military's perspective, that's, that gives them an ability to, to reach out and drop a lot of munitions in a single strike. So they don't have to send many aircraft or, or many munitions over, and it's a lot cheaper and easier. And what the military likes about them is also what's problematic about them, right? So they cover a very large area. This is a saturation weapon, right? This is not a precision weapon like we see you know, a bomb going into a, into a window, for example, or taking a tank out uh, directly. You're covering about a football field with, you know, potentially hundreds of these small bombs. And that's great if you've got tanks or infantry in the field that you're trying to attack. Not so great if you're using it in a populated area or near a populated area, you know, a city or a town or whatnot. So you have a problem, first of all, during the attack, right? So when the strike happens and the mother bomb opens up, that that cargo section opens up and all of these hundreds of bombs come down. Now they may hit a tank, they may hit some infantry, but you also have a very high potential of civilian harm for them to come down and hit civilians, to hit homes, uh, et cetera. And so that's the first problem. 
right? The first problem is at the time of use. It's such a wide area of effect. The second problem is these bombs don't work very well. Okay, they they have a very high what's called dud rate or or unexploded rate. So just think about it like anything else that you go out and buy, right? You buy a television in an electronic shop and you take it home, you plug it in, TV works, super. But, you know, some of those TVs may have had some problems in the manufacturing process and 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 that's why you have warranties. You plug it in, it doesn't work, you bring it back to the shop. Bombs, you're not bringing them back to the shop. And not only that, we're not talking about a low dud rate here. We're talking about fairly high dud rates, which leave large, large minefields on the ground. Now, when we talk about the specific munition that the U.S. is sending, it's the M864. And and please excuse me, right? We're going we're to throw some numbers out here. And I'm going to try not to be too technical, but it's important to have an understanding, a baseline of some of the technicalities here, because part of the Biden administration's argument really lies on the technical lines. So the M864 is an artillery shell. And inside the M864, you have 72 what are called DPICMs, dual purpose improved conventional munitions. Now it's it's dual purpose because it has both an anti-armor and an anti-personnel capability, right? So it's got a shape charge in it that will blow through about two and a half inches of armor. And then when the munition explodes, you're you're sending out fragments out to about 50 feet. So they're 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 lethal to about 50 feet. And inside the M864 are these 72 DPICMs, and you have two types, the M42 and the M46. It's really immaterial here, the difference between the two. The 46 is a little bit thicker, has a little bit more of an anti-personnel capability. But when the weapon is fired, there are a number of steps that must happen for it to operate correctly, right? So the the carrier munition opens up, the base slides off, the 72 uh, small D-sized battery bomblets come out. And they have these nylon ribbon stabilizers on them. And the nylon ribbon spins. And that's going to do two things, right? One, it's going to stabilize ammunition so it hits at the right angle. Because if they hit it anything more than a 45-degree angle, they won't explode. But also, when the ribbon spins, it arms the bomb. And if that ribbon gets caught up, doesn't spin correctly, et cetera, the, the, the bomb won't, won't operate correctly. And then they also get caught in trees and in vegetation, et cetera. So you've got, you've got a problem with that. But that process of arming the munition and getting it to finally activate is highly problematic because many of those steps sometimes don't happen. The bombs hit each other in the air and then they fail. And the failure rate, according to the White House, is 2.35%. The problem with that is that's just bullshit. The military's own numbers from US testing for the specific munition that we're talking about here, the M42 and M46 DPICMs, is actually 14%. And then we have another DPICM that the U.S. has that, that's not being used here. Uh, it, you know, it may be sent eventually. And that has even higher. That has a 23%. But, but let's just deal with a 14% dud rate for, for a moment. We're sending hundreds of thousands of these artillery shells. For every 100,000 artillery shells, that is a million unexploded cluster munitions on the ground. Those are cluster munitions that kids can pick up. People can get hurt uh, when they go back to their home, go back to their farm. Yesterday, on Thursday, um, the Marjorie Taylor Greene measure went to the floor. There were a lot of floor speeches about whether or not we're in a proxy war with Russia. And what ended up happening? It's a very similar dynamic to, to some recent votes where you do have these members like Matt Gates, who, you know, people on the left have no ability to even barely communicate with this person, much less guide them or reason with them on, on what the strategy should be. And and you're just forced to essentially respond and make the best of a very stressful situation. I mean, in this case, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, again, I, I won't can't get in her head or what her intentions are, but the intentions of the people that placed the amendment with her was clearly to use it to essentially support the war effort. But she doesn't even realize that that is their intent. And so she's allowing herself, uh, you know, or ends up being used for essentially pro-war purposes, which is a huge challenge for us. But I think it was a really great opportunity for progressive groups. You had progressive uh, organizations, anti-war organizations uh, on on the left and also on the right. And then you have members of Congress who have been doing this left-right work for years. Um, Going back, like I said, in in my career to to the 2013 Syria fight, you had similar activity in Libya and and then, of course, the Yemen work and then a bunch of Syria work more recently as well, uh, going back 
uh, several years with Jamal Bowman leading multiple amendments and and Matt Gates then leading a war powers resolution on Syria this year. So members are starting to see that what really matters here is the policy, not the personality. That doesn't mean it, it, it doesn't you know, members who are on the fence are certainly swayed by that. But we do have an increasingly strong group of members who are able to look past these really difficult personalities um, and and look at what's on the substance. And so essentially, uh, you know, I think between advocacy groups um, that are saying, let's vote on this policy here, you don't want to be. And I think the key message for this one is just the historical lasting impact of these weapons. You know, members really, you know, shouldn't want to be on the record as having voted for this, much like Elliot Engel was uh, in 2016, sending cluster bombs to Saudi Arabia for use in Yemen, because this is something that's going to continue to cause harm. And it's something that could be, you know, reflect on them in, in a primary or, or, or on just even in their conscience. And so I think by just essentially organizing, you know, reflecting, uh, you know, understanding people's frustrations about these really difficult uh, members and just how unbelievably unfortunate it is that they are, are leading, but keeping it focused on the substance. And by doing that, we were able to get, uh, again, this, this very core group of the most progressive members, the, the entire squad. Uh, you're able, we were able to keep all of those members and bring a ton of other members along as well. And then, you know, get the Republicans uh, that come along as well, uh, which in this case, given the Marjorie Taylor Greene's leadership is the bigger, the bigger number. So I think ultimately 147 representatives voted in favor of of Green's measure. Was that more than you were expecting based on her leadership of it? And did you ultimately see it as a success? Yeah, well, it's it's a success in the sense that um, it, it limited the harm that could have come from from this. Like, for example, if if groups had said, "Well, Marjorie Taylor Greene is supporting this, we're not going to vote for something that she's doing, or we're going to protest it," that would kind of reintroduce a more partisan character to the foreign policy, which is the exact opposite of what we need to really end these wars and these interventions. And so, I think it's it's really important. I wouldn't say it's a success, of course, because it was a very shrewd move by leadership to have her do it and to be able to manage even her psychology so that you can have her lead it, and she doesn't even realize she's leading it to undermine it. Um, it's just a remarkable move that they did. So in a sense, it was uh, successful that you know there wasn't really devastating harm, that we have a group of, of all of, at least many of our favorite progressive members, and a ton of other even more moderate members that said, I'm going to vote on, on the principle. And so, and the good news is, you know, there's no member more toxic than her. So little by little, as we go through this process, we're learning about the tricks that leadership that hawks in, in, in leadership have. And that's sort of the same story of the Yemen war fight over eight years is little by little at each stage of the process, you're learning the different tricks that they have. And here, I think both advocacy groups and members of Congress saw this trick and it's going to be less potent next time. And I think we'll be able to continue to convince members to vote on the impact of the policy and what's on the paper rather than on the personality of the member, because uh, otherwise, uh, it's just going to be very difficult in this current climate where you have these right wingers that are, are are getting a little bit more engaged on foreign policy. And presumably, like the White House also saw how it unfolded and, and got the message. You know, the White House, I think, is is very aware that this support for the Ukraine for the Ukraine war and especially the huge amounts of funding for it, you know, support for that war is it, it, it's it's solid in a sense, but it's also um, you know, there's definitely a, a potential for it to weaken depending on how things are approached and depending how developments happen. So I think the White House is very aware that, you know, and I, and I wouldn't be surprised if they were engaged on this and, you know, pretty engaged with Congress on this, because it was certainly a worry. If, if you read some of the reporting from the Axios piece, uh, we, you had senators already preparing what they were going to do if it passed the House. Um, and so this was certainly a major topic. And I think this this amazing Marjorie Taylor Greene play spared them some of that. But I, they know that there is an increasingly growing group of principled members that are pretty consistently standing up for, you know, reasonable human rights focus and restraint focus foreign policy. From the perspective of, of leftists, what should we be doing regarding Ukraine? You, you've got 60 seconds. No, I'm joking. But 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 honestly, like what? <laughs> nothing, basically. We should be doing nothing. I mean, we should not be expanding around the world, sending weapons around the world to conflicts that are only peripheral to any possible perception of the national interest. Why should we do that? Why is this a hot take? Because I think people need to analyze what is the actually existing American empire done both abroad and at home. At home, we have a militarized society. We continue to empower defense contractors. We have a society organized around the military, and we're spending money on warfare when we should be spending money on welfare. But beyond that, if people 
people want to say, well, that's selfish, Danny. What are you talking about? If you look at the actually existing history of the United States empire abroad, it's not really a question. Whenever the United States gets involved with a foreign country, basically bad things happen. I think the United States, for example, tried to covertly overthrow regimes during the Cold War 66 times. It It succeeded in a certain amount of those. But every time that the U.S. got involved, or nearly every time the U.S. got involved, you have incidences of mass killing, you have democratic backsliding, you have human rights abuses and things along those lines. So from both a domestic and international perspective, we really need to restrict the power of the U.S. empire abroad and the military industrial complex at home and constantly funding wars, even wars that are just from, you know, a dead alien perspective. If you were looking at it from 40,000 feet, it's absolutely horrible that Putin invaded Ukraine. But even wars that are just if the United States just continues to be involved in them, then this empire will last forever, which I believe, and I think Derek agrees with me, is bad in both the short, medium and long terms. The question then is, we made this agreement with Ukraine back in 93, 94 for them to get rid of their nuclear stockpile and us to come to their defenses. I mean, that is, I would say, the central question here, keeping our obligations and incentivizing further denuclearization from other countries by maintaining that promise. Yeah, I I think Mm -hmm. you're right, Emma. There is an obligation there. And I think to some extent you have to say the Biden administration has been fairly measured here in in limiting U.S. support to what it has been and not escalating. And even this sort of dance that we go through with every new weapon system that the Ukrainians ask for, where the U.S. says no, and then it says maybe, and then it finally says yes. Even that is part of the, the process of kind of keeping this at a level that doesn't risk escalating into something much worse than it already is. But Sam, to get to your question, and my answer is kind of vague hokum, I guess, but I think for the left, it's very important to support any outlet for diplomacy with respect to this conflict. And I was somewhat heartened to see a little while ago, there was the report of uh, some kind of old retired or, you know, more retired kind of ex-US diplomats engaging in subtract to diplomacy, including Richard Haas, the former now, I think, uh, president of the Council on Foreign Relations. Friend of our uh, pod, Richard Haas. Yes, absolutely. Friend of the pod, guiding light for American prestige. But anyway, just to, to see that happening at some level, and of course, the immediate reaction to that was these people are all Vladimir Putin's puppets. You know, Richard Haas is, uh, is somehow on the, the Kremlin's payroll. But just to have any amount of negotiation going on, because it's so clear that that there's very little of it happening right now. And it's equally clear that there's really no planning or thought being put into how this conflict ends. I think all the eggs were put into the basket of this counteroffensive that the Ukrainians are still engaged in. And somehow, you know, that was going to be a dramatic success. Uh, it hasn't been. And I'm not sure anybody knows what to do at this point. Diplomacy, even on issues on the margin, the Black Sea Group, initiative just just fell apart today. The Russians pulled out of it. Right. Uh, that's going to have huge repercussions for global food security, especially in places like Africa and, and the Middle East that are struggling anyway, again, because of climate change and, and instability, struggling to feed themselves. And now this adds a whole new level of difficulty here. So our argument would be it's important to support those efforts just to talk, to keep talking, even if the talk's aren't going anywhere right now. And I'm not saying, you know, pressure Ukraine to surrender or anything like that. Just maintain some open channels of communication. We've just heard clips today, starting with Gaslit Nation discussing the evident instability within Russia. The Good Fight looked at the slow progress of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. The Majority Report hosted the requisite discussion on the role of NATO in all this. Democracy Now! looked at some of the ways the CIA is involved in the war. Deconstructed, in two parts, discussed the bipartisan effort in the House to ban the export of cluster bombs. Intercepted looked at the long-term impacts of cluster bombs, and the majority report got two responses on what the left should be doing regarding the war in Ukraine. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Intercepted featuring Jeremy Scahill's first-hand account of the use of cluster bombs in Serbia. There were subsequent deaths 
that occurred as a result of the bomb, some of the, the bombs not exploding when they were dropped, these so-called uh, the dud bombs. And um, in fact, Serbia's, you know, up until 2009, there were still cluster munitions that were being recovered from various parts of the country. And The Good Fight discussed a media venture's effort to humanize the war in Ukraine through human interest reporting. Folks are not so interested in hearing the technical details of, oh, the front lines moved from this village that you've never heard of to another village you've never heard of, or that 12 people were killed in a city in the east and three people were wounded. So we launched counteroffensive.news to try to do compelling human interest journalism that motivates people to care about the humans in the war. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com support. And now to wrap up for the day, I, you know, was just checking the news as I was prepping the show and... Lo and behold, it turns out Trump is being indicted for his role in attempting to overturn the 2020 election. And I had some thoughts about that. The trials, I mean, not just the uh, the trial for the new indictment, but basically all of the various trials for his various indictments are going to be happening next year, right in the middle of primary season. And so it's quite clear and evident to anyone paying just a little bit of attention that this is going to be a stressful year coming up, not just the election, but all of the trials to watch, potential civil unrest. I mean, Amanda and I discussed making some plans for next year just to get ahead of it so that we wouldn't be living through chaos and also having to like make life plans at the same time. Like, let's just make a plan this year for next year so that we can follow it and have one less thing to think about, or maybe several less things to think about. You know, this upcoming year has the potential to be like quite an upheaval and big upheavals make people feel helpless and doing nothing and just watching makes that feeling worse. So it's sort of nice that we have a lot of time between now and 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 when thing, you know when we're really in the thick of it so that we can sort of mentally prepare and you know and maybe prepare in other ways so i thought i would just suggest that you know the the best solution is to take part in something bigger than yourself that is connected to the issue at hand when there is a big upheaval going on this election and prosecution cycle could be and i think at least should be seen as a time of attempted civic renewal. And so now's the perfect time to start making plans to be involved in civic institutions, support our election system, you know, help run the elections, both in the primaries and the general, help register voters, uh, volunteer to help transport people to the polls. I mean, and there are plenty of other uh, examples of things that you could do. There are organizations dedicated to providing volunteer opportunities uh, to people surrounding elections and, and civic duties. And so if you're equal parts excited that Trump is finally being prosecuted for his, you know, what, what to most of us are clearly evident crimes and also concerned and nervous for how this is all going to play out, Taking action, doing something, putting your time to use in service of a greater cause. For now, I would argue that the maintenance of American democracy is pretty high up on the list of uh, major causes that are worth your time. Consider getting involved. That's my advice. That is going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in. I would love to hear your thoughts or questions about this or today's topic or anything else. You can leave us a voicemail or send a text message at 202-999-3991 or simply email me to j at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and LaWindy for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. 
Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who already support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support. You can join them by signing up today. It would be greatly appreciated. If you want to continue the discussion, join our Discord community. There's a link to join in the show notes. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com